0: All right, let's have some fun. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 is our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Please open your Bibles, follow along, or navigate on your uh, silent device. See how I snuck that in? See what I did there? The topic in these verses, since in Corinth it was considered shameful for a woman to pray or prophesy without a head covering, Paul said, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. The title of our message, The Shorn Ultimatum. Let's have a word of prayer. Well, it works. Father, thank you so much for the worship you've bring us through and and just taken us into your throne room. It's more than preparation of the heart for the the message, Lord. It's it's joy in itself. It's a little taste of heaven, Lord, when we'll all be before your throne singing you praises for your wonderful gift of salvation. Now we want to turn our attention to your word. We're confident that you will help us with it because you promised you would be our teacher and you also promised that you would be here in a special way when the church gathers as your temple. And so speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. I'd refer to it as witness wear. It's clothing that presents a Christian witness. Some of you might have something on like that now. First one I ever owned was a sweatshirt from a startup company called Living Epistles that simply but boldly said, Jesus is Lord. Typically, it is a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or a hat, but you can get beanies and socks and shoes that have a Christian symbol or scripture, that witness to your faith, not to mention jewelry of all kinds. came across one article that reported the following, the Christian clothing sector has become one of the most popular in the American fashion industry. Total sales are more than $5 billion each year. Christian t-shirts are the number one choice of teenagers and youth below 23 years of age, exceeding the popularity of t-shirts from even the NBA. Good for you, kids. Among the believers in the church in Corinth, there was a witness wear and a witness not wear that was causing problems in the worship service. There was something that the men were wearing that they shouldn't have been wearing, Paul is going to tell us in verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And there was something that the women, uh, women rather, were not wearing that they should have been wearing. Uh, verse five, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Does this have any significance to us today? I mean, after all, among the Christian sisters, there are very few head coverings And the brothers with hats sometimes leave them on during the worship service. Are we therefore violating scripture? I'm going to organize my comments around two questions. Number one, what was the dishonoring head covering? And number two, who was the head being dishonored? So let's take a look at the head covering first uh, and go through that. Uh, www.headcoveringmovement.com. Don't go there now, but you could check it out later. headcoveringmovement.com. It's a website devoted to bringing back the wearing of head covering by all Christian women in worship services. I'll say this, they have a really cool logo. I almost want to do it just for that. One of the first things you read on the site says, the wearing of fabric head coverings in worship was universally the practice of Christian women until the 20th century. What happened? Did we suddenly find some biblical truth to which the saints for thousands of years were blind? Or were our biblical views of women gradually eroded by the modern feminist movement that has infiltrated the church? You might not realize it, but in many denominations, even in America, head covering for women is still the norm and certainly around the world. Now, there's so much disagreement on these verses that I wanna do something a little different. I wanna first try to identify what the men were wearing and what the women were not wearing. And then once we have a handle on that, we'll go back and go verse by verse. But I think it will be helpful because Paul bounces around to to kind of understand what we think the problem was. Another disclaimer, with so many really competent Bible scholars and commentators in disagreement on certain particulars in these verses, we are not going to be the ones who solve this topic once and for all. But we do need to make discoveries and then make some decisions. It isn't enough to dismiss head covering as cultural We need to see if it is biblical. You sisters can either go on just as you are, or or you might need to scarf up uh, at some point. And so let's get into it. So the Christian brothers in Corinth were wearing something they shouldn't. Verse verse four, rather, in verse seven, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. A man ought not to cover his head. Now, right off the bat, head covered is a poor translation in terms of what is being said about the men. The word should be translated having down the head. That's a weird expression. It doesn't mean hanging down your head as if in sorrow. It means there is something hanging down from your head. A Greek scholar says further that it is an expression that would only be used of a type of fabric hanging down the head. And so the question to ask as we start is, what fabric did the brothers in Corinth hang down from their heads? I think we get a big clue in Paul's second letter to these same believers. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. You can look at them. I'm going to read them. Therefore, since we have hope, we use greater boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look away steadily at the end of what was passing away. This is referencing when Moses came back from visiting God and the fact that his face shone with the glory of God. Moses wore a veil afterwards so that the Israelites would not see the glory fading. Paul used it to teach a spiritual truth. In verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 3, he goes on to say, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts, meaning the Jews. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. There's obviously a lot we could say here, but the point for today is this. Wearing a veil wasn't a good thing because it represented God's glory as something temporary and fading Whereas in Jesus, Paul says the veil is taken away so that under the new covenant, we go from glory to glory. So it's one of those comparisons of the old covenant and the new covenant. Under the old covenant, there was a kind of fade in glory because that which is perfect had not come yet in, in the sense of Jesus. But now that we're under the new covenant, we go from glory to glory. And so the wearing of a veil uh, would be totally inappropriate. I suggest, and others do too, that what was hanging down the heads of the brothers in Corinth was a veil. Can't be certain, but the mention of the veil in the second letter adds weight to the argument. And later in these verses, Paul will make a big deal about expressing God's glory. And so we're going with a Moses veil. They thought it called attention to the glory of God, that people would look at them and think, oh, like Moses, whose face shone with the glory of God. Did you ever have, I, was, I grew up Catholic and, and I had a glow-in-the-dark crucifix on the wall. And so I'd always be careful to leave the light on so it could charge you, you know. And then, and then if I ever, I had to get to sleep. Maybe that's why I go to sleep so quickly now, uh, because you had to go to sleep before it discharged. Otherwise, you had no one watching over you. And God forbid you wake up in the middle of the night with no glow. Uh, and stuff. But Moses' face actually glowed, and he put the, uh, but it faded. And so he put the uh, veil over it so that the people wouldn't see it fading. Uh, and so it was the exact opposite of what uh, you want to represent to, in the new covenant. You don't want to represent the fading glory, which is a brand of jeans, isn't it? Doing my best here. Faded glory. You don't want to represent the faded glory. That would have been a good title too. I'm going to have to jot that down. <laughs> Somebody remind me. And uh, anyway, so guys, no more veils. All right, so those of you who are into the guy veil movement, forget it. What the sisters in Corinth were not wearing that they should have been was a head covering, and that is a scarf or a shawl or some such fabric that covered the hair. Now, it does not follow that we ought to join the head covering movement. Head covering was definitely a concern in Corinth, but it was not universally practiced by all the sisters in the New Testament. And this is the important point. Uh, This text is not teaching that this is a universal practice for the church for all time. And here's one reason why. Number one, Paul gave instructions to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus on how believers ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. So it's the same general topic as is here in Corinthians. In 1 Timothy 2.9, Paul says, Women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. He didn't mean head covering. He didn't mention head covering, I should say. In fact, by telling them not to go overboard braiding their hair, he was letting us know that in Ephesus, the sisters did not wear head covering. You could see their hair. Second, the Apostle Peter wrote to the dispersed Christians throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is much of the Roman Empire south of the Black Sea. In 1 Peter 3.3, he admonished the women concerning their adornment, and almost using the same words that Paul used, says that it should not be based on externals, including braided hair. Again, if the women were practicing head covering, their hair would not be in view. So it's reasonable to conclude that the sisters of Peter's audience were not wearing head coverings either. Notice too, and this is important, the head covering is specifically connected to public ministry. It says in verse 5 of our text, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The sisters in Corinth were not being told to wear head coverings at all times, only while participating in worship. Now, there are some other biblical customs that read like commands in their text, but are actually situational. We're told to greet one another with a holy kiss, for example. Inappropriate. We're not going to be doing that anytime soon. I'm familiar in my Italian culture with the kiss of death, uh, which is similar to a holy kiss, but... Uh, Anyway, in fact, we had, it reminded me, I actually forgotten who it was and he's gone now, but we had a young man uh, who was really into the holy kiss and uh, most of the women that he was kissing weren't. Uh, (laughs) And so we had to deal with him and, and, you know, we thought, well, we have one of two options here. Either we initiate the holy kiss for everybody or we just take him behind the church and say, quit kissing people. We think it's weird. That's the option we went for. Jesus said we were to wash one another's feet. That is never going to happen here in my lifetime. Or at least I won't be a part of it. There are denominations that wash uh, feet uh, annually or some as a ritual all the time. I uh, found out this this is completely off subject and I'll forget where I am now, but I have to tell you this. Uh, have you ever heard the, the uh, Holy Week? Uh, the days are called uh, like... Good Friday, Holy Saturday. Have you heard Maundy Thursday? How many of you have heard Maundy Thursday? Maundy is from a root word that means uh, wash or serve, and it it, it comes from Jesus washing the apostles' feet, they think, on Thursday. And so that's where that came from and stuff. And so a lot of denominations still practice that. I've seen it at weddings, but, uh, excuse me, I was disgusted there for a minute, but... uh, (laughs) I don't know. Just <laughs> so, you've got head covering, you've got a holy kiss, you've got feet washing, foot washing. Feet or foot? I get foot. It's like in The Hobbit. Was it proud feet or proud foots? <laughs> but anyway, uh, those are things that the church, uh, y- you have freedom to do any of that. But it's not a must because you can prove biblically that it wasn't taking place all the time. And the apostles didn't talk about it all the time. Paul mentioned it here because it was situational to Corinth. And here's another thing, this instruction on head coverings follows hard on Paul saying in chapter 10, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks, meaning Gentiles, or to the church of God. For whatever reason or reasons, women not wearing head coverings when participating in the service was offensive in Corinth in a way that it wasn't in other places. So we thus teach that brothers should avoid the temptation to wear veils and that sisters are free to wear or to not wear head covering, but it is nowhere commanded. When in other countries and other cultures or even here in the United States, both brothers and sisters ought to conform to what is the norm, becoming all things to all men in order to win them to Jesus. And so the question, what should I wear to church, is a good one. To ask if you're in areas that are foreign to you uh, and um, if you're not in a Calvary Chapel most of us what we're wearing to church is not appropriate <laughs> but we like to be casual and that's uh, you know we feel like the Lord set us free from so many things and we uh, we're here for everybody but I ask people what they wear what, what do you guys wear at your church and, uh, and then conform who is the head to be honored taking these verses from the top now A new topic begins and it is order in the worship services. Paul is going to address mistakes they were making with regard to the roles of men and women, mistakes they were making at the communion table, and mistakes with regard to the exercise of spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy. That'll take us through verse or chapter 14. And so in verse 2, since we had verse 1 last week, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I thought they were making mistakes. Well, they were, but they were making them during practices Paul had established. He had established a regular worship service and the Lord's Supper. And so they were keeping these as traditions, in a good sense, only in keeping them they were doing the wrong things. Verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Wow. That seems to come out of nowhere, but it is the foundation for everything Paul has to say about church order, including the roles of men and women in the church. And so as he begins to talk about church order, he says, hey, this is based on creation. The traditions he established weren't his own idea. He didn't sit down one day and say, how should we do church? Or what do I think about the family? It was God's order going all the way back to the creation of Adam and Eve, Now, we understand God is revealed in the inspired word of God to be a trinity, or some say a triunity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's one God who exists eternally in three persons, and they are equally God. However, for the purposes of achieving salvation for the human race, God the Son, Jesus Christ, voluntarily subordinated himself to God the Father. Elsewhere, we learn that likewise, God, the Holy Spirit subordinated himself to both father and son as he is sent by the father to reveal the son. God, the father is the head. He exercises authority over God, the son. In essence, they are equal, but for your sake, so that you might be saved, they have adopted different functions. There is a proper order to things. There's also supposed to be a proper order among human beings. Jesus Christ is the head of every man. Each Christian man is to be in voluntary subordination to Jesus. Women are in voluntary subordination to their husbands and to church leaders, not to every man, but to their husbands for sure and to church leaders. The man is not superior to the woman. In Jesus Christ, we are all equal. However, to function according to God's plan for the family and the church, the man has been assigned as the head of the woman. And some commentators feel that Some of the Christian sisters in Corinth were taking their freedom too far and um, throwing off all authority and acting as if they had the same authority as men, not just equal with men, but instead of being under any authority, they uh, threw authority aside, and that that may be. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. As Taserface explained to Rocket in Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, When asked why he chose that name, it's metaphorical. And so the head being dishonored isn't a man's physical head. It's Jesus, our spiritual head, the head of his body on earth, the church. So it's a metaphor. Wearing a Moses veil to appear spiritual was a big step backward in revealing Jesus Christ. And in a sense, it devalues Jesus' work on the cross. Anything that brings us back into the old covenant and puts us under things in the old covenant that are not in the new covenant, uh, it's a step backward and it's dishonoring. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. And so this practice that they were into was dishonoring to the proper order of husband and wife. And Paul says... Uh, he gives them this shorn ultimatum, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Commentators have a lot to say about the customs in Corinth and what kind of women shaved their heads and what it actually symbolized. Truth is, no one knows, except the original recipients, what it was in Corinth that made this behavior shameful. We only know that it did and that Sinead O'Connor wasn't very popular there. So we really don't. You, you'll read line after line after line about, in Corinth, the temple prostitutes dressed this way, or this is what was happening, or this. Uh, we looked at murals of ancient Corinth and stuff. But the more prominent scholars say, hey, we actually don't know. The original recipients of this letter, the, what occasioned it, they knew they would understand immediately what Paul was talking about, All we know is that somehow in Corinth, this was an issue. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Now there's nothing here that is weird or chauvinistic or prejudicial. Look back to the foundational principle in verse three and read again where it says the head of Christ is God. Does that mean Jesus is somehow less than God, that he's inferior to God? That would be blasphemy. Paul's talking about order, about the right way of doing church and home based on God's order established at creation. And so, and this is really powerful stuff in terms of argumentation. It's like, hey, We didn't come up with this on our own. We're not trying to subject women. This isn't a throwback. This is what happens at creation. And your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, volunteered to become a servant, to become man in human flesh, or God in human flesh, rather, so that he could save you. And the Spirit is subordinate to him in that he sends the Spirit. And so they're equal and glorious, but there is a role to play, there is a function. Paul's point, how a sister acts and dresses in public, especially public worship, should adhere to God's divine order in creation. Woman is equal to man as Jesus is equal to God, the Father, but Jesus voluntarily assumed the subordinate role of Savior in submission to the Father. Women then as helper is complementary to the man. She is complementarian, we would say. Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Ah, The head covering is a symbol of submission to the authority of the husband. Once again, before you get upset, think of Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." So Jesus always made it clear and you can see it from his life that he was in submission to his father. He said at one point, I only do what the father tells me to do for the purposes of saving us. Jesus temporarily set aside the prerogatives of his deity and functioned as a spirit filled man. He was still fully God. He was also fully man. And he chose to set aside the prerogatives of his deity and so when people say, oh, you know, Jesus could have healed anybody he, he wanted to. Well, that's not actually true. The Father told him what to do and when to do it. And he becomes the, the archetype for us, the example for us, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about men and women, we're referring back to the Godhead for our example. What do angels have to do at the worship service? Warren Wiersbe comments saying, in some special way, the angels share in the public worship of the church. And learn from the church. Public worship is a serious thing for angels are present. That's why we have some empty chairs up front. If you're an angel, you want a front row seat. None, none of this back seat stuff for angels. They, they want to be right up front. But it's interesting. Let me back up what Wiersbe says in Ephesians 3.10. It says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And so somehow when the church gets together, we are making known things to angels about our relationship with God and the wisdom of God. Then First 1 Peter 1.12, to them, prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Angels are curious about the church, about the gospel, about what God is doing, uh, about why he cares so much probably for losers like us. I, I know there's angels in heaven right now thinking, what is that guy talking about? He should have been done 15 minutes ago. I could have given this message in 10 minutes. Why is he doing it and not me? And I wonder that too. Angels are really, they're really straightforward they are obedient. They do just what God says. And if you if you get them mad, they take your voice away or they do so, do something crazy, you know. And so they've got a great deal of authority. But God lets us minister the gospel. In the Revelation, angels are going to help minister the gospel. One angel is going to warn people not to take the mark of the beast. But right now, angels are hanging around. There, there's an old. In fact, I think it's in the uh, cafe because we have all those old album covers. There's one where the kid has closed up the cafe for the night and he's sitting by the, you know, drinking a shake or something, and there's angels by the jukebox playing some Christian songs. That's actually a very true image, according to the Bible. There are angels around, uh, and so look sharp. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman or woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through a woman All things are from God. And so, again, there's nothing really um, deep here. We all know this. This is obvious. Uh, But what Paul is talking about, again, is it's not a matter of superiority, only of proper order. Everything works in its own way. Woman is not independent of the man and the Lord. Woman came from man. Even so, man comes through woman. I mean, that's just simple biology. But Paul says that's the order of things, and so we have to be proper and in order. When we get to talking about communion and the gifts of the Spirit, Paul uses the word order a lot, do everything properly and in order. There's an orderly way of doing church. I'm not saying we're, you know, 100% on top of everything. No church is. But there are places where it's disorderly and um, to the point where the gospel is not clear. And so there's a, there's a way of doing things. Verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Truth is, hairstyles and hair length can be rebellious, can't they? Who remembers the rock musical "Hair?" Remember that? Barry McGuire? Give me a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, shoulder length or longer. Here, baby, there, mama, everywhere, hair. It was a mark of rebellion to grow, for men to grow out their hair long. I suffered from this. I was just a kid, and every time, you know, now short hair's back in, but back then, if you were a kid, you got a regular boy's haircut. That's what it was called. Regular, there were two haircuts you could get, regular boys or crew cut. And so I'd go and I'd get my regular boy's haircut and then I'd come home and at the dinner table, my older brothers, my, you have to know my dad, he's, he's he is easy to egg him on. He, he never knew they were doing this. And so I'd sit there and my brothers would say, I thought you were going to get a haircut. Well, I did get a haircut. My other brother would say, that doesn't look like a haircut. What do you do, cut one hair? And then they'd be quiet for a while. And then my brother, that That's not a haircut. And then finally, one of them would say, you need to get your money back. And my dad would go, there's no haircut. That's a cleaned up version of it. (laughs) You need to go back and talk to that barber. He stole your money. I want a haircut. That was my life. Every two weeks. But anyway, uh, in the 1960s, Singapore enacted a ban on long hair on men. That meant there were very few rock concerts. In 1972, the band Led Zeppelin couldn't even leave their private jet once they landed in the country. As soon as they found out they were on the tarmac, they said, hey, turn around and go back to England with that stuff. I don't know if they still have the band, but something you would like to know if you go to Singapore. How many of you travel to Singapore with long hair? Is there still a band? You don't know? I don't know. Not on women, probably. The Bible nowhere commands a proper length of hair for men and women. If you think this is it, that this is that command, how would you explain Samson and John the Baptist? They were Nazarites from birth and as a symbol of their dedication to God, they were never supposed to get a haircut. Samson got into trouble, to put it mildly, when his hair was cut. As far as we know, John the Baptist had his head cut off before his hair ever got cut. How long must that hair have been? And so you can't say that the proper length of hair for men is a regular boy's haircut, anything else is a shame, unless you're one of the most spiritual guys that ever lived, John the Baptist. And so you just can't. And so arguing from that, you think, well, then Paul must not be saying this is a universal principle, but in certain circumstances, long hair would be rebellious. And in the 60s, it was. It was a sign of rebellion. Today we have other signs of rebellion, but back then it was hairstyles. Generally speaking, throughout history, men have worn their hair shorter and women longer. The principle behind Paul's comments is, wait for it, we should always be careful to maintain biological gender distinctions because they reveal order in creation. They're not our opinions. They're not our preferences. We may have opinions and preferences on either side, But Paul would say there is a proper order in creation, and that is to be promoted and established forever. And so when people say, you know, the nicest thing they might say to a Christian is, well, you're so old-fashioned. If you only knew how old my fashion is. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when God created male and female and laid down this thing. Well, who is God to do that? He's God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, in subordination to die for the sins of the world. That's it. So God's not asking anybody to do anything he hasn't already done. And so let me say that again. We should always be careful to maintain biological gender distinctions because they reveal God's proper order. And that can't change. God's order can't change. Verse 15 is clarifying. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. A more literal translation is her hair is given to her instead of a covering. Was Paul confused? First, he said that the sisters must have their head covered. Then he says their hair was sufficient as a head covering. What's because of the distinction we pointed out earlier, the sisters in Corinth, for a reason or reasons known to them but no longer to us, must cover their heads when praying or prophesying. They need not all the time wear a head covering. Their long hair was sufficient so long as it wasn't elaborately braided and decorated so as to call undue attention to themselves. And so it's not that a woman can't do her hair or look beautiful or anything like that, but you don't want to call undue attention to yourself. You want to fit in. Verse 16, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. John Wesley said of this, the several churches that were in the apostles' time had different customs and things that were not essential. And that's what we believe Paul to be saying here. What if Jesus in his earthly ministry, even one time acted independently of his father to quote Vizzini, inconceivable. So too, when we mess with God's order for the family or the church, it fails to communicate the true nature of God. And so these things are very important. All of a sudden, this isn't about shawls and scarves and baseball caps. This is about preserving the order of creation so that people will know that there is a God. You could apply this now to contemporary contentions that are in the world and in the church. Do women pastors and elders communicate the order God established at creation? Does same-sex marriage communicate the order God established at creation? Does gender neutrality communicate the order God established at creation? Quote Warren Wiersbe again, an important thing is the submission of the heart to the Lord and the public manifestation of obedience to God's order. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We are to communicate that foundational truth to the world by maintaining it in the home and in the household of faith. Creation declares the glory of God, and so can we when we maintain God's order set down in creation.